Hello and welcome to Tea O'Clock with Kella. Bring your tea and leave with more. Hello everybody. Hello, welcome back to episode two of our mini-series. Yes, and this week we're going to be talking about a bit of the 16th and the 17th centuries, kind of picking up sort of where we left off yeah. and going up until the kind of the towards the mid mid to late 17th century yeah for a bit of 18th century next time mm-hmm. we're doing an, a little renaissance moment so last time hopefully you listened to the last episode yeah. we ended about 1450 yeah roughly i think so we're picking back up round about the start of the 16th century and we're gonna look at one significant renaissance poet Isabella yeah. de Mora and then we'll be having a big restoration moment doing enlightenment I guess yeah kind of talking about Afro Ben and yeah and we will yeah we'll stop before romanticism yeah. we won't go that far yeah yeah well, so there's a there bit more a... go on no it is a bit more concrete and specific today whereas last time it was oh my god like what are all these writers doing from the beginning of time and now we're like okay calm down let's yeah. mainly look at these I two but we'll, we'll do some little brief scene setting yes. around both eras to be fair um and i'm sure we'll do a little bit of name dropping about some of the women in amongst the period between um isabella de mora and yeah ben and I mean, from when I was researching yeah. both of them and some of the other women of this period as well, they've got some kind of scandalous, really out there stories that you yeah. would not believe were their real lives. Like, just wait till we get to just talking about Isabella de Mora to begin I with. I know. Like, oh, her yeah. life is, it's like a story. Yeah, it is. And oh, the same God. is for the elements of... Um, Afro Ben's life as well and some of the other women of the time it's mad I feel like you're gonna do the heavy lifting this episode because (laughs) let's be real I read how how do you pronounce it do you say Orinoco yeah Orinoco Orinoco I read that and I researched about that book yeah and I researched about Isabella de Mora's life and I've got some of her poems yeah, but I haven't looked that much to the other people. I don't know anything about Afro Ben's life, to be fair. I, so, I know a little bit because she's oh, actually we'll we'll, we'll anyway, get to yeah, it, yeah. She has a link, a supposed link to one of the other female authors oh. who was kind of in between the two of them. Okay, um, well, I'm very much looking forward to educating me today. It's exciting. Yeah, so we'll we'll see. Yeah, thanks. Do you okay. want to? Um, so have a little in no 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 oh, don't ask we're still me. <laughs> we're still doing what we've been consuming okay okay we yes. are yes yes <laughs> if you don't mind no of course not of course not would you like to kick us off yeah i can do Go Fine. cool um hmm. what should i go for well I just finished watching season 33 of The Simpsons. I love that. 
I and love that. it's really good. And I'm not embarrassed to say that I love The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. And I've been a big fan since I was little and I've seen every episode. Well, yeah. I haven't actually because um, I haven't seen season 34 yet, oh. which is also on Disney+. And I was so excited when I realised season 33 was on there. And they had a little musical numbers in it. And I always love when they do their own spoofs of of TV shows and that they had they did one episode that was uh it was a take on my octopus teacher which was quite fun and Lisa had a pet octopus so it's it's really really cute um I guess if you don't either you like the Simpsons or you you don't what you watch or you don't but I I just think if you are a fan and you haven't seen some of the more recent episodes because like me you don't have Sky TV then it's on Disney Plus now, so yeah. I hope everyone else enjoys as much as I do. Very good, very good. And it's so nice because at the moment I've not really been watching anything. I've just been dipping in and out of the seven books I have on the go. Yeah. So it's just so nice when I just have a little moment. I'm like, oh, yeah. let me just watch this. So, yeah. Definitely. It's one of those that I haven't seen much of recently that used to always be something that was always on mm-hmm. that we'd always watch and I always found it entertaining yeah I haven't really watched much recently yeah but I know how much of a fan you are and it makes me think that <laughs> I should watch a bit more because they are entertaining and fun. yeah 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 they are. Very, very good. Very good. um what about you what have you been what I was just thinking of what I've been consuming and I've realised that the past week I've been on a little bit of a normal people moment. Oh, okay. And I think that's linked to the Paul Meskel moment in my life currently. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I don't need to say anything more about Paul Meskel. But I've, <laughs> I've both reread and rewatched normal people literally over the last week. So when I said I've been doing nothing with my week, that was a lie. I've actually just been consuming <laughs> normal people in every single form that there is. I just, I just love it. I know not your favorite Rooney mm-hmm. novel, as are others, but oh, I don't know whether it's because it was the first Rooney book I read, or I don't know what it is about it, but I just absolutely love it, and I loved rereading and re-watching it maybe because I'm in a bit of like an emotional well at the moment as well mm. and it seeps into that because it is quite sad like it's kind of happy sad but also just kind of sad at point yeah as well but I just absolutely love it and yeah I don't really have anything else to say we've spoken no. so much about normal people but yeah you should listen to our normal people episode do and I will definitely I we definitely talk a bit more articulately than me just sat here going I love it um, but I do <laughs> so isn't it funny I how I love that we've both started off our years by rereading our favorite Sally Rooney book yeah we just you just need a bit of comfort in January slash February slash yeah. when is this out is this out in March I don't know <laughs> yeah I think it might be <laughs> Yeah, yeah, actually, it probably is. Oh, that's crazy. Why? Oh, my God. Oh, maybe the end of February. I don't know. But I don't know. Maybe we'll... Comfort in their yeah. life. I think that's what we get from these. Yeah, potentially in March we'll 
one of us will have reread Beautiful World Where Are You? We'll have a complete set. Yes, yes. Yeah. I need to get my own copy actually. I've been meaning to for a while. Yeah. Not that well, actually, book, you but... can have my copy because George has it, but she's definitely not going to read it. <laughs> so just get that off her. Then. Well, she'll give it to you gladly. She'll be like, oh, because I wanted her to read it. And yep. She just isn't going to. So uh, she'll be overjoyed for you to take it back. She's like, oh, thank God I don't have to read that anymore. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly back into time. Back back in time. Back into, into time. time. I don't yeah, that was that was wrong. Um, back in time. I don't I don't think we left the timeline at any point there. We're just moving backwards on it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. To the sixteenth century, I guess. Like I'd have to screw my brain on. Yeah. I think this is more comfortable territory now this is a bit more what we did at uni well I still didn't really do this at uni but I can visualize Mm. was this the orange Norton anthology book yes this one right here yeah that hefty one this hefty one because we've got good old shakesy p around at this sort of time yeah that's pretty wild hefty one Oh, and I realised I never actually gave my little, um, I had a little fun fact, but not really a very fun fact, about female writers. Oh, yeah, go on. An anthology that I didn't give last week. but I Oh, now's your time. Now's my time. Let me just find it in this notebook quickly. Okay. So, I don't know if this will be of any interest to anyone else, but we've got this... We've got a collection of Northern Anthology books, which basically supposedly cover English literature from the Middle Ages up to the present. And these are hefty books. And Mm. there are only 84 female writers in the entirety of the collection. Wow. Which is absolutely insane. And I even found when I was just flicking through the contents to kind of at like the initial beginning of research to kind of find find out some of the key women figures that yeah Dalton Dean and it said in the introduction that there are only 84 in the entire Northern Anthology collection and there are only four of those women who have full-length pieces of their text in in the anthologies so like a full short story or a play or like an epic poem or whatever. How only four? Because it's not like it's not available. It, yeah, I fair enough. Are... They're talking about Sappho. Why? Why are they openly acknowledging that they haven't bothered to put the full thing? But the in. thing is, though, in literally the same breath in the introduction, they're like, "This is so because this is the tenth edition of the Norton," and they're like, mm-hmm. "This is so much better than our previous editions." Blah 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 blah. But it still feels like it's the imbalance is so very much there (laughs) it's insane and to think that in this edition alone you've got the whole of um you've got so so much of um philip sydney stuff you've got loads of john milton's Mm -hmm. you've got his entire paradise lost definitely two full shakespeare plays and things like that and to think that there's only four 
complete works by women yeah. in these technologies. Just that blows my, my mind. mind a little bit. Yeah, I get that maybe, I wonder if people would argue, like, well, maybe the writing wasn't as good or didn't have as much of an impact on other writers. When I think of even, like, okay, because the area I know the best would be more 20th, 21st century. Yeah. Even in that, would they not have a full-length piece by Alice Walker and in, say, like something by Zadie Smith in there, a full-length thing? There's definitely more than four. Would they not have a massive bit from each of the Bronte sisters? You could so easily get over four. I, I don't get that. I mean, I don't know when... whether some of it is down to the fact that there was a lot more kind of poetry or religious writings and whatever by mm-hmm. women. Yeah, there are lots of those in these but there was also lots of prose works by these women yeah so they printed in their entirety entirety but you mm-hmm. could put two shakespeare plays two ben johnson plays in one in one volume yeah mm-hmm. i don't know hey, so for context roughly how many authors do we think are in the anthology because when you say 84 it sounds like a lot but the anthologies are huge they are let I don't even know how to estimate. Count just to see how many are in this one. Well, I wonder if, if I can just Google it. What's an anthology? Oh, how many authors? There are 60. From my quick counting, there are about 60 different authors in this one volume. And yes, I know it's one of the it's a big volume, but that includes yeah. almost every single one of William Shakespeare's sonnets in here. So that's why it's quite long. But there are about 60 in this one volume. And this is one of six. Oh my gosh. Yeah, okay. So, quite a small percentage. Oh, human. This is literally why we need to do this miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say maybe, random guess off the top of my head, maybe a fifth of women. Maybe less. Probably less. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good guess. Yeah. Mm, after do I'll have to go I don't actually know I think I may not still have my anthologies but I always I want to count every single one yeah I want to know who who are these th- four that made it but whatever it's fine yeah. Me, moving on moving moving swiftly on let's talk about an Italian renaissance poet who yeah I mean bless her she didn't have the best life can I just say it. it it is okay this sounds really bad but my summary is this is juicy I don't not in that sounds bad I but I know she's been through she's been through it but yeah. I'm just saying this in the least really way possible is actually so well it's just, it just is interesting like and I it, would it think this would be such a good like film made it up when you yeah when I was reading it I would I had to read a couple of different versions because I was like, surely that's not true. Yeah, I feel so awful for her. But like, also, I was thinking, how have I not heard of her? Yeah. How, like, this is a crazy story. If she's had a way more interesting life and seems to have been a really incredible writer, how is she so overlooked? Especially now, now that we're, okay, fair enough at the time, a lot of female writers have been forgotten from all these centuries ago lost to history but I I thought now maybe there'd be some kind of resurgence and 
she yeah, become more popular like this could be such a good limited series I hadn't thought about that but yes it could and I know there's been a couple of like biographies and like um academic writings and like collections yeah her life and her work but this would be the sort of thing you could imagine making a really great like like you say a limited series or like little like fun documentary series yeah that both entertains Mm -hmm. whilst bringing awareness to these women yeah yeah I feel like we shouldn't keep the listeners on tender hooks about about Isabella's life. I think <laughs> no, we no. dive yes. straight in. Wow, boring stuff. Isabella Demora was poet in the Renaissance in Italy, and she was born about fifteen twenty and died roughly fifteen forty five, forty six. But no one really knows because they never found her body. Is also one of the things. Ooh. ooh. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> um, I don't know if you would take the lead and I jump in or I don't mind you you can just go for it okay yeah especially because this is the only bit I did research <laughs> you can jump in okay, so she grew up with a few brothers and she really didn't get on with any of them and I think they were jealous of her because she had a really good relationship with her dad mm-hmm. and he ensured that she was educated and um he even he taught her poetry himself, which I think is really cool. But he had to go into exile because of political reasons to do yeah. with supporting Spain or there's, something or other. Yeah, there's lots of politics involved in all of these female mm. authors that we'll talk about. And I do not know enough about the politics to go in depth. Yeah, no, this is my thought. So, I was like, there, there was politics stuff. There was politics. So, there was wars between. Yeah european countries it was all going on Mm, yeah so this was back yeah back in the day when it's the kingdom of naples he went off to france and then he stayed and fought there and she was absolutely gutted because she got on so well with her dad and she thought that her mum was a bit of a wet wipe Mm. which is fair enough how it must be difficult for her mum so anyway the jealous brothers decided to essentially lock her in tower well they made her stay in their family castle which was on a cliff you need to guys you need to start it up it's i don't know if i'm pronouncing it right but it's favale castle f-a-v-a-l-e really on a cliff with a pretty much a moat well not really a moat i guess it's a cliff so obviously there's water but like the river was going past i think it's called siri was it yeah something like that yeah yeah it was by the Ionian Sea and while she was there she pretty much wrote poetry to deal with her grief at not being with her dad anymore being isolated in the castle being away from all the other literary people because she also had a tutor and they were really cool and taught her all about Petrarchan sonnets that kind of thing and she was writing letters to this guy and it's a bit unclear if it was romantic or not who really knows but the brothers got wind of it and thought oh my god she's sexting this married man even though like, she probably wasn't don't really know and it turns out that they were so fuming that they then killed her and like, they did... did they kill her 
no, 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 no. Yeah. Kill. Sorry, you can carry those. No, you, you, you take it. No, you go. So the brothers first went after her tutor because her tutor was the one who was passing the letter, helping to pass the letters between the two of them because this Spanish nobleman who she was sending letters to was mm -hmm. essentially their next door neighbor, I think. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. So first they they kill the tutor mm -hmm. and then as well as going after her they're going after him to the point where i think he like he tries to flee or escape yeah somewhere to get away from the brothers but that mm -hmm. doesn't work well for him yeah. and he ends up dying and then they kill kill their sister as well yeah or mm -hmm. some people say that she might have jumped yeah from the castle off the cliff mm. in order to make sure her brothers didn't kill her but either way yeah. it's pretty certain that the brothers essentially went after her yeah. and the tutor and this man mm. who she was writing letters to all because they were essentially jealous and wor mm -hmm. worried about what would happen yeah but at least i mean there wasn't really much justice for her at all no. but they did investigate like the authorities did get involved yeah. and the brothers did have to flee the country and then they did trials in absentia or whatever you call it um but it was actually when the authorities were investigating the murder that they went into the castle and found the poems yeah so yeah. silver lining and they know, were just then but yeah. then kind of forgotten until i think maybe it was around the 20th century when yeah right at the start i think it was 1901 ish yeah yeah so very early 20th century when lots of kind of reclaiming re, re recovering that's what mm -hmm. um, yeah recovering these female authors was happening mm -hmm. so it's pretty yeah. incredible that there is still her work out there and there are 13 of her poems that survive yeah. well yeah, poems because three are sonnet, ten are sonnets rather, and yeah. three are kind of poemsy songs or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're quite. Um, yeah. We assume that they're quite autobiographical from the sort of things she's talking about. Because yeah, the only experience she had was what she was going through, and like you said before, mm. she's talking a lot about her loneliness and wishing for her father to be back, and kind of wishing she had a better life. Mm. yeah then she did have yeah yeah and i find it so interesting that to be fair was my research wikipedia yes it was but that's okay but it it was really lengthy there were yeah. they were citing left right and center really long so yeah no shame um but there was a quotation on that Oh, Cine, I think the river's called. Uh, well, I don't know. Um, and someone who I presume is a scholar, Paul F. Granler, mm. said that no other poet prior to her infused such personal depth into poetry, yeah. um, contributing to the development of a new sensibility in poetic language, one grounded in a kind of life writing that raises the biographical, the political, the familial and the personal to a genuinely lyric stature, which I love. Like, that's the whole thing of how emotional her poetry is. Yeah. I love how personal it is. That's so cool from her. And also on Wikipedia, 
it was saying about how she probably was really influenced by Dante and also by yeah. the other Latin and Petrarchan poets that she studied. But then also a lot of her writing, like with its emotional quality, was low-key a precursor to romanticism. And it's just yeah, such a shame like so how interesting. she fits so well in between. Like I just I love finding the connections and the reactions between different movements. Yeah. And I think, oh no, like imagine if she hadn't been isolated in her castle and she could actually be interacting and like maybe her work being circulated and oh, I mean, yeah it's almost like if that was the case you could imagine the whole kind of face of poetry and the literary mm. movements of the time changing and yeah then being more advanced and maybe the romanticism period coming earlier and then it's just so crazy to think of how how whether these people were well known and recognized and read and how that then influenced the literary environment of the time and how kind of easily that can be skewed regarding yeah. on whose read whose writing we're reading or whose writing the contemporaries were reading at the time. I find that yeah. just absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah, because she just fits so well into the movements and yeah. reacting reactions between them. Definitely. That it baffles me that she was in a castle by herself and yet she was creating this exceptional work. I suppose yeah. that's just when you face with trauma, some of the best art comes out of it. That's a well known fact. Yeah. Or is it a fact? I don't know. But, but you oh, yeah, and, studying English literature, you definitely see that. Yeah. So. I, I, I love so much that the poetry was more of a. I don't know that if she was expecting it to be read, but it was more for her to deal with yeah. all of the hardships she was going through. Yeah, like a coping mechanism. Yeah, and I love that. I, I don't necessarily know if that was how other people view poetry before, like maybe, but I feel like a lot of the stuff we've looked at is quite religious and political and, I don't know, biographical. This is so just personal. Actually, no. Of some of the Sappho stuff was, which is quite exciting. Yeah. But I, I really love this because it just feels so modern of her to do that. And it's so exciting. This is maybe the first poet, well, first female poet anyway, that was actually doing that. And it's it's relatable to even now. Like that's what I do with my poetry. Yeah. I write it to work through things, you know. So I just I find her so exciting that she is like a new icon for me. Yeah. I love her. No, definitely. And I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of her I know before and she doesn't seem to be kind of listed anywhere the only way you find out about her is literally googling her name yeah the fact that she has become such a figure in the Italian renaissance poetry mm-hmm. movement and everything and it feels like she's got the sort of life that you would have thought people would have been People are always drawn to kind of scandal and these kind of crazy things. Yeah. Happening. But I don't know. It's just absolutely yeah. I guess the world was a different yeah. place. But I love the fact that now she is, well, there is things written about her. There's a couple of different biographies. There's yeah. a bit of academic writing about mm-hmm. her. I hope that with time, like with so many of the women, that yeah. more of their work is going to enter the kind of mm-hmm. public. Sphere. yeah although 
I actually, I, when I was trying to find some poems, and I, I did pick a, a couple of sonnets somewhere, um, I couldn't find that many English translations, like, or it didn't come up automatically for me. It was yeah. a bit more of a struggle. So I really hope that she is someone, as you say, that is going to become more well-known now. Not not from just us talking about her, but from hopefully a yeah. general more, like, try, people having a similar attitude to us and trying to look back and actively search out these female writers and someone who is such a a figurehead I guess of a new style of writing she deserves to have that recognition yeah yeah definitely I'm 100% agree with you there and yeah, the same way yeah. I found myself accidentally being directed to some Italian websites and I was like I I know I think my Italian's not that good. Well, it's all right, but it's not that good. <laughs> so, yeah. But no, but... she's definitely such an interesting voice. And she's, and yeah. the way her sonnets sound, they they sound so timeless. And I feel like a lot of that, obviously, yeah. from the way she wrote. And it essentially, from what we've read about her, her poetry was yeah. saying before, just her trying to trying to figure out what she was feeling and deal with her situation and it's those sorts of like core human emotions that are just completely timeless yeah and I feel like poetry is quite a timeless art form yeah I agree actually I think that in poetry it's an elevated style of writing Mm. and well, not necessarily. There's definitely people who write in more vernacular or colloquial style. But I think when you look at canonical poetry especially, it is like you when you think of Shakespeare's sonnets, that is what I think of a lot of poetry. And even yeah. now I think the words are carefully chosen more so like every single word than would be in prose. Um Yeah, definitely. So I do think that it isn't, obviously poetry has radically changed but I think for me it's it's clearer when we're looking more at a novel yeah 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 I, to- I totally get what you're saying makes mm. a lot of sense to me yeah yeah and I don't know if it's just the translation but it does it reads even more modern than ones I was looking at I don't know mm. if it's a thing of because when we were talking about Sappho and yeah. I had one that had been translated in a very Elizabethan style and yours was much more, much more modern, modern in yeah. its phrasing. So I don't yeah, know. It's from like the 70s, I think. Mine. And mm. it's so interesting how that plays so much into the translations. Yeah. Would you, should we each read just on it out first? Yeah, yeah, go on. You okay. On I was going to read from a high mountain revealing the sea if that's okay yeah go for it okay the italian title which i feel like i should read out because that is what is called but no judgment please is dun alto monte on daisy your school your mare. oh yeah no that's it <laughs> <laughs> okay um it's from a high mountain top where one can see the waves. I, your sad daughter Isabella, gaze out for sights of any polished ship coming to bring me news of you, my father. But my adverse and cruel destiny permits no solace for my aching heart. But 
enemy to any thought of pity, turns all my firmest hopes into laments. For I see neither oar cutting the sea, nor any sail that billows in the wind, so solitary is this dismal shore. So I can only curse my evil fortune, and hold in hatred this unhappy place, the only source of my tormented life. I do love it. I really love it, and I love that... Um, once again, Wikipedia said that nature is a huge theme of her poetry. And I'm like, yes, romanticism, I see you coming. And I love that that is her vehicle for dealing with her emotions as well. I guess she's just surrounded by nature and she's looking out at it all the time. And in a way, it is holding her captive. Yeah. Um, but And also that she personifies fortune so much and is very down on um, what lack of fortune she has or bad fortune yeah. she has. And I think this poem with this on it really spoke to me because she just does not hold back on her grief, which no, I'm yeah. here for. And even, okay, I'm not going like, to go too deep into it, but just like I've really noticed the, like, the run on, like the enjambment and the sejura in this. And it, it was giving me sobbing vibes, like her hiccuping when she's like, the waves, comma, I, comma, your sad daughter, Isabella, comma. Yeah. Really gives me that image of her just sobbing over her father. And yeah. I, I just think that it's so, the imagery is so vivid in this one and in her, I read some of the other ones. Mm. And like, just the, the torment of the sea is just the perfect allegorical framework for her to oh, talk yeah. about the torment that she's experiencing and the idea of her father being across that sea. Yeah. And, and I think it's just so good because it's one of those things with poetry that often the first time I read it, I think, what are you want about? And I just don't get most of what they're actually implying. When this one is just straight up, she tells you, I'm grieving my dad and I'm trapped in a castle on the top of a mountain. Yeah. Uh, also, I'm loving when I dig into it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's emphasizing that. And I'm loving it. Anyway, sorry, would you like to read a sonnet? No, no, I I absolutely love that. And you're right. These are in no way, shape or form happy poems. Oh, God, no. Bless this her. This poor woman was not living a happy. No. At all. No. Oh, but no. Um, I'm going to read one, which the first line is, I don't know what the Italian title is. Um, Hey, once again, the infernal infernal rocky valley which is supposedly one of the ones which is more influenced by dante's inferno as well but i also feel mm. it's got it's got a bit more of that romanticism nature yeah link to it um so i can kind of see where without delving into it very much um no. we'll kind of see where where that kind of romanticism yeah. in her comes from yeah um, so yeah lots of very epic imagery of the scenery and the okay. nature. Anyway, here once again, infernal rocky valley, O oh, alpine rivers, ruinous high peaks, O oh, broken spirits stripped of every virtue. You will now hear my plaints, my endless sorrow, and every mountain, every cave shall hear me. Wherever I may stop, wherever I go, for fortune never stable does not tarry, but everlasting adds to my pain, whilst I lament forever, night and day, 
O beasts, O rocks, O melancholy ruins, uncultivated woods, O lonely caves, howl still with me, unriddling my grief, and weep with me, in high continuous voices, bewail my misery, worse than all others. I mean, it's a very, very sad one. That's a bleak. And there's lots of um, personification, like linking, linking her feelings to it being reflected in the rocks and the trees and the animals and everything around her. And yeah. you can just imagine how she must have so much come to despise where she was and just see her grief. Mm. in everything around oh her oh god yeah and it's really really sad but also okay. really beautiful at the same time yeah the way isn't she it, weird it all. how sad things are kind of beautiful yeah I know. yeah well there's a whole just read up on edgar Allan poe and his theories about melancholy and sad and beautiful things going hand in okay. hand um mm. Yeah. Which, mind you, there are some quite problematic elements of that with his views of women in amongst that, but that's not... God. Yeah, okay. Mm. Right. There's definitely something about pain and beauty yeah. going hand in hand and uh, sadness, and yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Wow. God. I'm wondering if um, we could have a little a brief moment of talking about her contemporaries, maybe, or what, who else was writing in the 16th century? Yes, let's do it. Okay. Um, who have we got? Catherine we... Parr. She yes. was writing. A yeah. Religious, um, yeah, I was going to say about Catherine Parr. Dude, um, talk to me about Someone Parr. else, where was it? Someone was saying about how, like, she was one of the first female novelists, but also, she literally like she wasn't because it's was all religious stuff. But he was um, definitely like it was first... like a prayer book. Yeah, and she was definitely um amongst the first of the women to have her own name attached to her yeah. work. Because yeah, many women either published anonymously or under pseudonyms and whatever. But she was definitely among one of the first to publish with her own name. Yeah, no, apparently she was the first. Um, she said apparently she was the first in the UK. Yeah, first woman. That's happened. Um, and that was around the same time as is um Isabella de Mora and a bit before. Yeah, because fifteen twelve to fifteen forty eight. Yeah, I do find it really interesting that she did that because obviously, without going too much in detail Henry he really was shaking up the church he really so... was shaking up the church I mean he created his own church so he could divorce a woman yeah um which so... added a lot to the politi- to the yeah, yeah the political nature of religion at the time and for hundreds of years afterwards yeah yeah I mean I think one of her Books was trans just a translation. I don't mean just. Like, that's also really cool that she did that. Um, but yeah, it's quite impressive because if you think of the lack of education for women at this time and the fact that quite a few of the women on this list that I've made anyway, yeah, did translate did translations. Yeah, 
which is interesting that that's a a way for women to get into writing um yeah definitely but i think what catherine was writing like that her own stuff was super protestant very and much so i'm like whoa she was at the forefront of writing for this new church i guess like how that is so cool that she literally wasn't just a a queen in terms of more just in name and status like she actually was doing her own writing um it's incredible so yeah i think there's lots of psalms kind of thing Yeah, I thought there was some of her stuff in here, but there actually isn't. Mm, oh, I'll yeah. go and see if I could find a bit to read, but... I don't know how riveting it would be because it's not like the other religious writing we were talking about last week when they were having visions of being yeah, visions with of God. Um, yeah, so no, but still. But yeah, this was around the time of Isabella. My gosh, sorry. Around the time of Isabella because this was. Well, Catherine Parr was around 1512 to 1548. And yes. I love, I can't remember what website I got it off of, but it just said next to her, she was a noted writer. I was like, no way. And that was all it said. I like, I don't think that's what she's primarily known for, but. Oh, I love that. Um, that's so funny. Yeah. Um, another figure I'll bring up is Golbadan Banu, who yep. was a daughter of the Mughal Emperor Baba. And she wrote the biography of her brother, Emperor Humayun. Mm. And I, I found that really interesting because when we were looking at people that it was more like 11th century in the last episode, a lot of the writing they were doing as well was more um, like someone was writing about um, the life of some other emperor. And yeah. there were people that were writing what was happening in the, the battles. And so again, it's really interesting that it's translation or it's more just biographical stuff that the woman mm. writing says it so yeah yeah and again it makes sense that it would be these more noble women who have access to being able to read and write yeah and so it and makes that sense is... that maybe like they would be allowed to write if it was something that was useful like if it was biography about one of the men yeah. And that is definitely something I found in my research that mm. pretty much most of these women who who I found stuff about were noble women or were were yeah. of higher social status that they were afforded the luxury of education because it was seen as yeah. a luxury for women at that time. Yeah, um, and yeah, there's definitely fewer of them. I guess like Isabella de Mora, who was. Um, educated by her father yeah and there was oh, I can't remember who it was I found someone else who essentially taught themselves a lot of stuff through reading and like copying out different writings oh. Afroben? no I don't think so. yes it was I mean we'll talk about that more with Afroben oh. in a bit but she definitely didn't have the same kind of formal air quotes education as some of the other women she taught herself a lot oh that's cool Hmm. i have um a third person that i know more than just their name and what they did about yeah um this is marie de journey french sounds very french yeah um 
born in 1565, died 1645. And she's super cool because she was proto-feminist and she actually wrote essays about women having equality. Love that. Yeah, and she's described as a polemicist, which I didn't really know was an actual noun. Like, Ooh. I don't know, but... Yeah, I, I love that, that she's actually, like, her, what she's remembered for is all of her feminist theory. I, what I think is amazing. And she was, and she also wrote a novel, supposedly. Um, and one of her essays was, I think it was just called The Equality of Men and Women. But she yeah. also, um, is he called Michelle de Montagne? The yeah. guy that we did in first year of uni in the craft oh, writing yeah, module, yeah, that yeah, like she would edit and comment on his essays as well. Mm. So that is really cool of her. Um, she taught herself know. Latin too. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I guess is. Oh, and also her novel. Um, was oh gosh, yeah, no, okay, I'm, I'm not going to pronounce that, it's quite a long title. <laughs> um, but it was talking about the problem of women having to depend on men. Mm-hmm. Isn't that really crazy for this time? For so what are we in yeah. like the late 16th century? Yeah, incredible. Yeah, women couldn't even own property, they couldn't own anything. Mm-hmm. make their own decisions and no. I, I love the fact that there were so many of these women fighting for themselves yeah. at this time yeah but then it also kind of makes you sad when you think about how that how long after this point did it take for even like the suffragette movement was oh god I know what's like hundreds of years after this mm. um and everything and you oh, and it's just a little bit infuriating to think that women had to fight for this long to be heard and even now it feels like women are still fighting to be heard. but also i'm like power to these women yeah for sure definitely especially how radical it would have been for them to have these thoughts at that yeah. time into actually to write an essay about it Definitely. at a time when not even that many women could write i know i'm making gross generalizations here but but no i totally just, get what you're saying yeah but yeah incredible yeah. i found another pro-feminist writer yes called um amelia lana she was an english poet mm-hmm. and she wrote a lot of poems and things which essentially attacked the common notion that uh, going right back to like genesis and eve and the original sin and basically mm. she wrote a load of stuff being like no women did not cause the the original sin and she wrote a lot of stuff in defense for women and being like no you can't just blame these women for everything and she also wrote which i thought was quite funny she mm-hmm. wrote a miracle poetry collection about Jesus's life from the point of view of the women around him and I need need to find some extracts of this 
I think that's such a radical thing for her to be not only write like basically being right doing feminist writings and whatever but linking that to biblical writings but not fitting into the conforms of women writing religious things at the time but being like no I'm going to poke the holes at what's wrong with these religious writings and how you're basically demonizing women in them and I'm like more power to you like how insane is that That sounds like something someone would do nowadays. I can't I believe she was doing that at the time. and Gosh. as well as this she was also making money off her writing she was one of the first professional Really? Yes. in her time and I'm like that is just absolutely insane Uh, Oh. amazing Oh my gosh. That reminds me quickly, I just want to jump in and say, um, I really recommend to everyone listening this book called Eve Bites Back. And I'm so sorry I've forgotten the author's name because I've not read it yet. Um, but the first two authors, so it, it's an in-depth look at eight female writers. And the first two that she writes about are Marjorie Camp and Julian of Norwich. And I'm so annoyed that I did not get this book before we did the episode about them but I'm hoping that I will read it before we do an episode talking about the other six people in the book um I've not I've not read it but I I mean it's had so many good reviews and I just think that it's essentially doing what we're trying to do on the podcast so that's a bit uh supplementary reading for our listeners and for us anyway sorry you carry on Oh, that's right. I've only got a couple more that we can go on. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. I wanted to mention Mary Roth, who is actually one of the few females of this time who we actually did look at one of her poems um, at university. I cannot for the life of me remember what module it was. Okay. But all I know is that I've got little scribblings in my Norton, so I'm like, I know we studied her. And I think it, it might have even been in the poetry module because she she was dis- she's described as one of the most prolific and self-conscious writers of the Jacobean era and she basically she wrote using the Petrarchan lyric sequence essentially but kind tried to twist the use of gender in it oh. in a way because obviously the, it was often used for kind of men and male speakers expressing their kind of love and their passions and their frustrations and their hopes and anxieties whatever and she kind of twisted that and she wrote some that were addressed to cupid showing female desire and obviously the whole just the idea of female desire and all of that was such a massive thing because for so long people either didn't think that women had like any form of sex drive or desire mm. at all i love the fact that she took this very male dominated poetry form and was like no i'm gonna turn this to a to a women's form and celebrate women and what they've wanted and she writes so many very heroic and strong women in these poems but obviously that wasn't taken too well in her life and to the and there was also some kind of mixing up with kind of 
politics and I don't know whether the the crown were involved in some way with some like lords and whatever that she was associating with at the time and oh. they essentially it's all a little bit hazy but it's like they tried to kind of hush her down and basically discourage her from publishing much more like they were trying to shut her down essentially the public um and all these people but I just thought that was really interesting yeah. a kind of another kind of biting back as such yeah that is really ringing bells with me I feel like we must have done that in our first ever module I'm yeah. so glad it, that was actually being taught at uni love that so it's very good and then I'll mention one more okay um a woman called Margaret Cavendish who also happened to be a duchess um so this is now we're now verging into the 17th century because she was alive from 1623 till about 1673 mm -hmm. so kind of overlapping with um Afro Ben as well mm -hmm. so we're kind of transitioning into yeah. that and she was she seemed to do everything she was a poet a philosopher a writer an essayist playwright and she was also one of these one of these first women who published under her own name oh and not only was she publishing under her own name and basically writing a lot of po poetry and she comedy sort of letters and was trying to educate through that and she wrote kind of comedy letters as if they were from they were real women talking about important issues such as like marriage and war and politics and things like that but she was also one of the first women who attended the royal society of london so was there with all these kind of big philosopher men and everything Amazing. she was in that crowd of people and she was one of the very first um to be like mm, animal testing animal cruelty not great and on top of all this, she wrote arguably the first science fiction story called The Blazing World. What? Which sounds very interesting. And the fact that science fiction in the 17th century was like a science fiction-y, utopian, yeah. dystopian sort of um, story. Yeah. It just seems like she was doing doing so much and she didn't let the fact that a lot of people thought that the kind of it was termed as the truthfulness of her topics in um, uh. one of the quotes that I read even though a lot of people thought that that was that was frowned upon because she was this aristocratic woman who yeah. shouldn't have been doing this they saw it as disgraceful she didn't let that discourage her so She's definitely someone who I want to do a bit more research into. Good old Margaret Cavendish. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, and there is some of her stuff in the Norton as well. It's a couple of her poems and things. And she's wrote an autobiography as well, I think. That mm. when she was basically talking about how she reacted to things in her life. So yeah, very interesting. Mm. Well, I think I've got a couple also from the 17th century and it makes sense in this brief going through everyone apart from main two yeah, to, um, for me for to it. chat about them so we can just have our Afro Ben moment at the end and yes, there amazing. you go. Um, so um, I found 
Catherine Phillips, and I recognise the name, but I don't know if that's just because it's not the most dramatic name. Um, but she was a poet. From, she was born 1631, died 1664. And she's got her own Poetry Foundation page. Hooray. Amazing. Um, yeah. And I love it. So she's most known for being a translator, but also for writing poems about female friendship. Was it so cute? That. Yeah, and she was translating things from Italian and from French as well. And I think in the title page for one of her anthologies that it said that she was unmatched or something like that or, like, incomparable. So that's a big slay. And also, I think she was actually being read at the time, like, in the 1650s, 1660s, which is really cool. I love that. I'm just seeing if there are any bits of her poems here. I don't know. But um, I love that essentially she was taking um, the form and like the love language of 17th century poems, like more to talk about marriage or more like romantic love and was using it to talk about her friendships, which I think is such a power move from her. Yeah. Literally, yeah, me when I'm writing my poems about my friends, I'm obsessed. I love that. But she's super cool. And then um, I also found an Italian writer um, called Elena Cassandra Tarabotti. And it's amazing, when you Google her, I don't know how I first came across her, but not really a lot comes up. And there's this one page from Chicago Uni, I think, and it says that she was made to go to a convent. I also, I should say, she was around 1604 to 1652. So she was made to go to a convent in Venice. And then after that, um, she loved writing. And she wrote about how she was very feminist and said that fathers shouldn't be putting their daughters in a convent. And that is actually giving them trauma. And Ooh. they have no, like... I think it's just quite like it's emotional stasis in there. Um, and she said, what did she say? Consigned to unbearable physical and emotional stasis. Um, and it's, yeah, apparently very provocative. And it was actually quite political about the role of women and them being enclosed. Oh. So I don't necessarily know that she was writing fiction, but I think it was more so just some more like feminist writing yeah uh, yeah and also she actually did get her work published in her lifetime amazing which is like how did she even do that if she was yeah in a nunnery she must have had help from someone I think it did actually say to be fair she somehow while she was writing forged relationships with some of the 17th century Venice's most important literary figures who helped her to publish her works. Ah. Those are words directly from the Chicago website. Yeah. Yeah. And also just one final little extra person linking very much onto that. I found a woman Mm -hmm. called Judith Drake who was around more towards the um, latter part of the 17th century but she Mm -hmm. wrote a very famous piece called an essay in defense of the female sex which yeah is essentially which was about 100 years or so before mary wollstonecraft mm. um obviously 
um oh, I can't remember the right word. I don't know. Now you said that one. I'm trying to think of. I don't know. The word is just gone. But <laughs> essentially, it's one of the earliest um feminist essays that advocates for the education and equal treatment. Mm-hmm. Well done. And I think it was in the form of letters as well. I mean, even it's. I'm sorry, my brain is just there's there's too many thoughts and they're not like quite computing together. But I think that in itself is like we've spoken about before with the forms of writing and how it's like these women couldn't just outright write in kind of straight prose what they wanted to. There had to be a kind of extra layer to how they were going to make their points, like with this being written as in essays, but essays in letters rather than it just uh, writing this essay and it being taken in the same way that an essay written by male at the mm-hmm. time would be taken. So you can see that these women were working overtime to get their points yeah. across. Is it time for Afro Ben? I believe it is time for Afro Ben. Oh, for you, we're into finally what the miniseries is about actual novels. Yes, sorry, we're going to stop just rambling about the other women. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you're going to have to take the lead on talking about Orinoco because I have not read it for about four years. Yeah, fair play. Um, um, but I mean, you can take the lead on talking about actually Afro Ben. I can talk a little bit I don't about it. All I know is I read the book. Yeah. But yeah, Orinoco by Afro Ben um, came out 1688. So, yeah. start of the Enlightenment. Um, and yeah. it was adapted into a play at the time as well. Um, and one thing I'll say before it, you can give biographical info ever um is i found it really interesting that once again wikipedia told me that she began writing prose probably in response to the consolidation of theaters and then not needing to be as many plays because she was more dramatist yeah. so i think that's really cool because i think what actually did lead to writing the novel in technically this was the first well, I don't know. Robinson Crusoe is supposedly the first novel, but some people also do say that this was. But I mean, we've spoken about various first novels already. Yeah. But this is one that's a bit more people actually, oh, you know, this is. So that is Definitely. really exciting. And she is for sure one of the most well known and remembered female authors yeah. of this time. Mm-hmm. And definitely has. I would say probably all of her published works still in print today because mm-hmm. I between these two Oxford University Press world classics, yeah, got Orinoco and other writings, which has almost all of her other um, prose mm-hmm. as well as some poetry, and then I've got the Rover and other plays, which has oh, all okay. of her plays in. Oh. So, okay. so you're an expert. You've read them all. I definitely have not, but it's very good, very interesting. But yeah. she was born in 1940. Um, what? She wasn't born in 1940. <laughs> I re- I read I read the six upside down. She was born in 1640 and died okay. in 16 um 96. 
No, a good last then? Rather. Oh, okay. Eighty-nine. Um, it was one of her other plays that was put on mm. after her death, which is also incredible that her plays were still being put on. Yeah. After she died, um, and she was definitely one of the first to properly make a living. She did write by making a living and broke a lot of kind of cultural barriers and is seen as a literary role model. And the fun little, you know how I mentioned, oh, I didn't, yeah, I did mention Mary Roth earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Mary Roth supposedly had some, um, some affairs and things in her life. Um, and there was a bit of a, there was lots of, there's lots of kind of overlap and no one was really sure what was just what. And I think that is also kind of what, like outroar caused in her personal life kind of led to people not wanting to publish her writing anymore and she supposedly had an illegitimate daughter who could some like uh i can't think of the right words because it's so hard to get everyone's correct biographical details in these time and know who is linked to other people who like family trees and everything um but supposedly, Afra Ben's mother could have been Mary Roth's illegitimate daughter. What? Really? Yeah. yeah. Ooh. There are some sources that say that that could be, which I feel like just adds even more to this kind of scandalous female literary tra- tradition, mm. but it's also just a bit out there and wild. Um but yeah, who knows? She could have been someone completely different. No one really knows even Afra Ben's maiden name before she married her husband. Wasn't uh, he a slave trader? I think so, yeah. Well, potentially, there was definitely some links. But then again, it's kind of hard. And then he supposedly died of the plague in the 60s as well. So, But then also he might have been... Um, a seaman and she traveled a lot in her life as well and then on top of all that she was also supposedly a spy for charles in was the she actually? supposedly there is i think there is writings that she could have been and she was definitely involved in all the politics mm. of okay. the time as well and she was kind of friends essentially with Lord Rochester and George John Wilmot. And she spent time in the American colonies as well as over in England. So she she was kind of jumping all over the place. It's kind of hard to keep track of her. Um, and she also, in amongst all this, didn't have any formal education as such, but she's said to be one of the ones who kind of self-taught herself through copying writings and doing that before she then wrote herself and I found a quote by a a critic called Jermaine Green who described Afra Ben as not so much a woman a woman to be unmasked but an unending combination of masks and I think that's very much that's such a beautiful way of summing up all of this that was going on in Afra Ben's life and all these kind of different lives she almost seemed to have within yeah. her own life as well as being 
a writer and a playwright. Oh my gosh. Wow. And a poet. I love that because when I was researching analysis of Orinoco, most of the discussion was just about how autobiographical it was and whether the narrator was Afro-Ben and it was based off of her beliefs and her experiences. And I don't know if this is naive for me to say, but I wasn't really bothered about that when I was reading the story. That wasn't one of the first things I thought. I don't find that discussion that interesting, really. And it's being like, oh, is it actually true? Did she actually do this? Because a lot of the characters that she wrote about were actual people. And I'm like, why, why are you so obsessed with that? And it's what you're saying. Like, why is she trying to be unmasked at last? This isn't the masking art. Yeah, I know, and I know exactly what you mean because I feel like it almost in a weird way feels like a sort of double standard because it's like, well, they didn't do that with, I know Robinson Crusoe was a bit later, but they didn't go, oh, that's just Daniel Defoe telling a version of his his life and Yeah. what he went through. And I mean, okay, I know that Robinson Crusoe was inspired by an actual real-life person who Daniel Defoe met who had overheard him talking about being marooned on this island and everything whatever so it is Dan, um, Robinson Crusoe is arguably probably definitely more based in the true story than Orinoco is Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. definitely just fiction but I find it so kind of demeaning that with women's fiction they were just trying to put it down as being autobiographical and just Yeah. trying to prove that it was rather than looking at the writing and the story and how she uses these comparisons between the colonial other and women and the kind of points she's trying to make on gender, which I think are much more important than whether she made the story up or whether it's based on Yeah, her. no, it's like the same thing with the whole biographical element and fascination with how maybe some women's writing may have romantic elements or themes in it, and then it's written off as more like it's, it shouldn't be part of the canon. Like with Daphne du Maurier, and with that, I've seen, oh, it's just romance. Yeah, And it actually slaps. So, it does. Yeah. Yet these men are okay to write their romance. They're like chivalrous poems and everything, and then going on these big quests to find love and save the Mm princess hmm and whatever. Um, Yep. no offense, Edmund Spencer or the others who wrote stuff like that. I mean. love it but it just feels like there's a bit of a double standard that's still seen within the canon and within how Mm. critics Mm. approach these works even yeah today well it's interesting have you heard of or seen the trailer for american fiction no i have not okay it looks really interesting and it's about a writer And I don't think his novels are getting picked up. And then he and he's complaining about how well complaining's not the right word, but that he feels as though he has to write in a certain way because he's black and that and that, that he would only get picked up if he wrote about like his experience of being black, that kind of thing. 
and then as a joke he writes something that he is in a supposedly authentic black voice but like not authentic do you know what i mean yeah um it makes more sense if you watch the trailer i'm not explaining okay. very well um and then the publishers love it and they pick up and like yeah absolutely like it's gonna be huge and it's pretty much just white people buying it and seeming woke it's that same thing of like yeah. having a, a, an expectation of what you should write like being now allowed maybe to be in the canon or yeah. etc or take it more seriously but only if you write about certain things no that's you know, so like, true which it doesn't apply to maybe the all these men writing novels in these white men of class men no and that is definitely so so true because they, i can't remember what the um proper french term for it is but it translates to directly women's writing and there's mm -hmm. this whole um critical side and i remember looking at it um in my year abroad in germany in my gender seminar and it's essentially mm -hmm. this whole school school of thought that women only wrote in a certain way and that you could so easily distinguish between a woman's writing and a man's writing purely because they were either a woman or a man and even if they were to write oh. about the same thing it would be inherently different and you'd be able to tell the gender through their writing I mean obviously that's kind of been dispelled now but for a while that was definitely mm -hmm. a very popular way of thinking and yeah. you still see it now as well and you can see it going as far back as this and it links to what you were saying there about American mm -hmm. fiction that this idea that there is something inherently different about how women write versus how men write yeah it's yeah it's like we're trying to impose like people have been trying to impose these boundaries and these classifications when mm -hmm. it's obviously it is a bit more kind of free-flowing and blurry and even when you we look into like literary movements and things and the overlapping and even when we were talking about um Isabella de Mora's poetry kind of having romanticism mm -hmm. elements and this idea that these literary categories and things aren't all kind of bricked off in their own no. all, yeah all this kind of blurring and if they were all separate pink colors it would all just be a kind of brown mess <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> to put it that way yeah no it's fair Anyway, would you like yeah. to talk to us a little bit? Yeah, about yeah, I will. Novel, short story. Novel, I think I that would be nice because I have finished reading it in time. You have, so. and I'd love to hear. <laughs> what you think. Hey, well, um, is an African prince who ends up being a slave, and he is from Coromantian. Don't know if that's an actual place, um, and then when he's a slave he goes to Suriname and the narrator um lives out on the plantation and she's quite sympathetic towards him um and she tells she narrates his story from um a few years back him being in um Africa what sorry I feel bad to say in Africa I don't really know the country I don't know this place but anyway um what she's heard of his time there and in a way it's a love story but it's also really brutal and she talks about mm. how he was in love with 
I think she's called Imwinda, and then his grandfather, the king, heard that she was really beautiful, asked her to go to court to be one of his mistresses. Trigger warnings for the next couple minutes. Yeah. So then he rapes her, I think. I was a bit confused because then Orinoco he go he breaks into where she's being kept and he sleeps with her and he says that she, I feel like he was describing her as a virgin so I was like did your granddad not rape her but mm. I thought he did but he definitely abused her anyway it's so horrible to read it's awful mm. and then um, after that to get his revenge the granddad well the king I should say um, sells them both off as slaves and so they end up in Suriname. And then there's a whole section about how he's treated differently when he's there from the other slaves and he's given some respect, especially from the narrator and her friends. Um, because they're like, Oh, you know, you speak English, um, you seem I don't know, higher class, you don't seem like the other slaves, you've got a, a Roman nose or kind of thing. Yeah, I I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah why mm-hmm. and then um i guess the third part of the novel is well never um he then leads the slaves in a rebellion and then most of the slaves end up um defecting and then he is whipped and then he kills Imwinda and their baby well, unborn baby, and then he kills himself, but then they, the people in the plantation manage to bring him back to life and then burn him at the stake and then cut off his genitals, cut off his arms, um, and he's quartered. It really doesn't end well for anyone. No, it's so, so... Brutal. It's not a happy story. Um, and one of the things I was wondering while I was reading it is, is this a book at its core that is a love story? Like, what is she trying to do? Or is she trying to do an anti-slavery book? What is she doing? But actually, I don't really think it was giving up anti-slavery vibes. I think it was more so to do with his being a king and her being sympathetic to him only and not the other slaves really i think yeah it makes sense with her writing around the time of like charles ii and you saying i haven't been a spy i think it is more a book that for me very much i'm reading context into it and maybe isn't there but it makes sense that i think it's more about like a king being treated wrong and like having his rightful place. Yeah. No, so I think it's more of a political thing than rather anti-slavery. Like I don't think she seems as bothered. I don't know, but no, and I think that that mm. makes a lot of sense when you think about it in its context, like you say, because this whole kind of I don't, I'm not I don't actually know the dates for the whole thing, but mm. definitely these anti-slavery narratives weren't wouldn't be in these sorts of prose writings at these times unlike how they would have been um in um, like benjamin johnson's time and things like that yeah or like 
Uncle Tom's Cabin. That wasn't until yeah. the nineteenth century, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think you're definitely right in, and I see it in the same way as mm. making a political statement mm. about kind of monarchy and nobility and mm. class, essentially. Yeah. Rather than it being a love story, but then it is quite strange that even on the blurb, the the one line that describes the book is a story of a noble slave who loves a princess. But there's so much more to it than that. Mm, I don't think that's really an accurate summary. No, not at all. Mm. And I think maybe that is the problem with a lot of these older prose pieces is they're not accurately kind of marketed as no. No. Yeah, there's a lot more a lot more to them and the mm. gender aspects of it as well yeah yeah mm-hmm. it, i find it interesting that um this is a very political book and if it's the first novel i like that oh i'm intrigued by the fact that it's all religious and political writings that we're getting mm. not that we don't get political writings now but I'm like it's so interesting to me that it's pretty much that rather than a love story um but it's it, I've what I found interesting about it as well is that it's written in such plain prose it's very well like I saw that supposedly she just sat and wrote it down in one go mm. like just in one sitting and I can kind of tell because it's just so plain and it's not it, it doesn't necessarily feel like a novel. It feels more like a a memoir, just an account, I guess. Yeah, and I wonder why... I wonder whether that is the reason that it's kind of taken as this true story. And I think mm. that even itself in, like, the very first, like, faceplate for it said something about it being a true-to-life true story mm. or something. Even oh, yeah, she has that whole statement at the beginning, doesn't she? Yeah. So it's almost mm. like, was that a way to sell the book and to get it to get it written? Because the subtitle is, or a royal slave, a true history. Yeah. So and I wonder mm. whether that contributes to the fact, to how it's so kind of matter-of-factly written. Mm. And whether maybe she thought that the kind of political messages and the things that she was trying to get through would be translated easier mm-hmm. if it was presented in this very plain, obvious way. Yeah. Even though that maybe hasn't worked the way she wanted it. Mm. True. Mm. I do, I appreciate we were talking for a while, but one thing I did want to mention about it was um, I read somewhere about how um, there's inklings of Othello in this. And I think, yeah, you do kind of see it. But then I'm like, is that just because they're both black men who met their tragic end and it was in literature from not too dissimilar time? Um, but, yeah, I do find it interesting if that, was, if that was partly inspiration for the text. And um, if yeah, so, but- it's again, like, I don't think, 
we're that sympathetic to Othello as a character. Well, okay, maybe it'll be what, but I'm not. Um, mm. And I think looking at it through that lens is quite interesting in thinking about, well, is this all about like hubris and the downfall of someone's pride and thinking that mm. they should be treated like... Well, I don't know, but then it's not really because then he... She's the narrator is very sympathetic to him, so yeah. I don't know. But I just thought, oh, that's an interesting to bring up. That supposedly this is kind of a fellow vibes, but um, I personally didn't. Yeah, that, but... no, I'm with you on that, and I'm pretty sure a fellow is one of those that I mean. Tell tell me if I'm wrong, and I might be wrong here because it's mm-hmm. been a while since I studied a fellow, but I think it's mm-hmm. one of those that like something like Hamlet, Shakespeare writing Othello wasn't the first time that story had been told. No, no. It wasn't an original story. It was definitely past versions. And that Mm. more so, personally to me, speaks to just kind of the general society and the fears and the politics and Mm. the power dynamics and the race issues and things like that I think it more so speaks to that being a a topic of the time mm-hmm. and an important thing that was being explored yeah through literature mm-hmm. but I think like you say people are very quick to kind of link the two because of these very kind of base superficial links yeah I think maybe someone else can see more um stronger connections yeah. I don't yeah I know it's a shame we're running out of time though because I think there's more to be said and especially even just about like having strong female characters in this and it does feel as much as it's probably quite a xenophobic Mm. racist book I don't know like I mean what book wasn't from the time not excusing it but no I know um, yeah but I do I yeah if we have more time being just talk about that whilst the main character is a man lol um, quite, Imoinda is quite a strong female character in this. It'll be interesting in future episodes to see what our female characters are like. Are they super submissive? Yeah. I think she was very good at writing these strong mm. female characters. And even just the fact that it is just a female narrative voice in itself is oh, yeah, true. Amazing. Yeah. It's like so unheard of. Mm-hmm. Like, not only is this one of the first extended prose pieces by a woman but it's told by a woman like narrative mm-hmm. voice so you've got that as well rather than it just being men yeah true that kind of sums things up maybe yeah we could have spoken about this is going to be the problem every single episode on this and i will get better as we because we're over well... halfway through these kind of opening setting the scene kind there's of there's just too much to say to set the scene like this is the thing is when we go through and do the yeah after we've done these initial scene setting episodes then we're not explaining the entire who else was writing at that time exactly like, what, what was happening in the world then so one novel one author yes and we'll be able to pull <sighs> on all these little bits and mm-hmm. feel a lot more kind of in in our zone not just lost in a big sea yeah and be able to pull on and reference a lot of these other things yeah well. be a lot I'm, I'm delighted next time we're moving into the 18th century 
we are i'm slowly getting more into my comfort zone i mean don't yeah. get me wrong i'm enjoying this but yes i'm, but, I'm looking forward to 18th century exactly and i think we'll have even less of the kind of in-betweenness um and we're going to be looking at charlotte lennox and elizabeth hayward eliza hayward rather um mm-hmm. we'll be looking primarily at those two and yeah. their writing in the 18th century mm-hmm. so yeah yeah thank you for sticking with us thank you so much for this we hope you've learned something and that you go and look up some of these um writers works and poems and yeah yeah see you next time thanks for listening to tea o'clock with keller join us next time for more